Hello and welcome to the Michael Collins House podcast. My name is Jamie Murphy. I am the general manager of Michael Collins House Museum in Clonakilty and I will be your host. With our museum closed and our History Talks events on a hiatus due to the current COVID-19 crisis, we thought now was a good time to look back on our previous talks and bring the history to you. It has always been our plan to create a podcast, but this crisis has given us the opportunity to make it our priority. We will be releasing our previous talks, interviews and discussions on an ongoing basis from here on. All podcasts will be available on the Michael Collins House app, available at the Play Store and the Apple Store, um, or online at michaelcollinshouse.oncell.com. We also hope to get our podcast available on other sites in the near future so keep an eye on our social media and we'll keep you updated there so this podcast is a good one to start with i think it's a short enough talk we recorded back on the 23rd of august 2019 as part of heritage week um, and also michael collins's anniversary week here dr Anne dolan from trinity college dublin discussed a chapter from her recently published book michael collins the man and the revolution this book was co-authored with Dr. William Murphy, who also spoke on the night, and hopefully we'll have his talk up soon enough as well. The book is an excellent read, and possibly one of the most honest and factual Collins-related books available. We highly recommend it here if you have the chance to pick it up. So, without further ado, here is Dr. Anne Dolan with Making and Remaking Collins. I hope you enjoy it. In 1939, the Times of India published an interview with the Hollywood actor George Brent, this very dapper gent here on the right. Brent claimed um, that he'd been a dispatch bearer for the celebrated insurrectionists, was how they called him in the Times of India, Michael Collins, during the Irish Rebellion. While Brent was not a terribly talented actor, indeed one critic quipped that for Brent, acting amounted to whether he chose to play a part with or without a moustache. He was then at the very height of his Hollywood powers, having just starred opposite Bette Davis in Jezebel the year before, so he's very, very well known all across the world at this point. Nonetheless, both actor and newspaper, and again remember it's the Times of India, believes that a link to Michael Collins added glamour to the life of George Brent. George Brent didn't need much glamour at this point. Maybe more striking still was that neither actor nor newspaper needed to explain it was assumed that readers throughout India knew exactly who Michael Collins was. And we could attribute this easy familiarity, this sense of Collins' as daredevil rebel, to long memories of the news reports that had certainly circulated in India back in 1921 and 1922. Or this may well have owed much to the romantic figure of Michael Collins that had already emerged from Hollywood from the film Beloved Enemy, uh, which had come out in, the, in 1936, which was Michael Collins' first Hollywood outing. Uh, back in 1936, where rather than dying at the end, as we know, uh, he comes miraculously back to life and walks off into the sunset with the lovely Merle Oberon. But wherever it came from, this knowledge of Collins, or this assumed knowledge of who Collins was, there was clearly a version of Michael Collins that had made its way to the furthest corners of the world, and that version was certainly not Michael Collins, the Minister for Finance, the head of the provisional government, or the many, many other things he had become by the time of his death. No, it was Collins, the romantic hero of 100 escapes, which was how one newspaper put it when he died. It was the man who won the war, to use Arthur Griffith's phrase, uh, that he had conjured up in the heat of the treaty debates. It would be foolish to say that Collins became this figure in death, 
dying the way he did certainly added to the, to the idea of Collins the fighting man, but it certainly didn't begin it. It was there long before he died. But arguably his death allowed it to flourish, and flourish it certainly did, not least through the types of Collins that were very quickly published uh, just within a matter of months uh, after his death. And in a way, it's this remaking of Collins, if you like, you've had if you like, the, the, his own uh, way in which he made himself, but now in a way, how is he going to be remade in this, this time after his death? Two popular biographies very, very quickly set a rather uh, immediate tone. The American journalist, Williams already mentioned him, Hayden Talbot, published a quite sensationalist book, Michael Collins's own story in 1923. Uh, it's the, the sort of best image I could get of the, the front page of it. But he was then succeeded uh, by Pierce Beasley's hefty, as you can see it there, two volume. It doesn't do justice to the 950 odd pages of it that there were. Uh, his two volume biography of Collins, published in 1926, which reduced all there was of war to Collins and much of what there was of Collins to war. Initially, Beasley had government and family backing for the work for what was supposed to be an official biography, or at least, as Beasley phrased it, a worthy monument to the life work of a great man. Relations with the government soured when Beasley mentioned serialisation. He wanted to make a bit of money off it. But Collins's family supported Beasley's ambitions. And when Michael, Michael's brother, Sean, threatened to withdraw that family cooperation, the government gave in. But matters were not settled by this intervention. By March 1924, W.T. Cosgrave, uh, then president of the Executive Council of the Irish Free State, wrote, we can scarcely justify having on the payroll of the army a general whose only occupation is writing the life of the late commander-in-chief, which in and of itself reflects just how important he is and the control of his image is uh, to the new state. Beasley, as, as things turned out in the months ahead, was demoted from that rank and resigned from the army, taking his manuscript with him in disgust. Although Beasley failed to get the £12,000, which is an absolute fortune if you think of it in 1924, and this was the amount he hoped to get from an American publisher for the book, which again I think says how much the world was interested in Michael Collins at this point. Although he failed to get that money for it, the books, these books, these two volumes sold in quite massive numbers, particularly given the, the fact that they are two bloody great big books, 950-something pages long. When it, and they sold incredibly well when it was published in, in Dublin in 1926, reviewed and advertised, and we can have a sense of just how widely it was advertised, certainly in Britain, America, India, China and Australia, and serialised in the Manchester Guardian. It was clear from the far-flung places from which Beasley received his fan mail that his Michael Collins had considerable resonance and reach around the world and suggests just how lucrative the Collins myth had already become. Indeed, Beasley, or the big fellow's Boswell, as Peter Hart called him, played a key part in shaping the nature of the, that Collins myth. According to Roy Foster, as he puts it, the book began a venerable and often mawkish tradition of celebrating Collins's glamorous image in early death. It was often inaccurate as well as pietistic, Foster says, but it certainly set a very clear tone not least because Beasley was desperately possessive of his subject and his own position as chronicler-in-chief. And he's, in some ways, an incredibly important figure in terms of how we know what we know about Michael Collins, not least because he brought an awful lot of the archives home with him at the time. Indeed, Beasley's book, or, or, or rather, Beasley brooked no rivals of any kind. Sorry, there he is, there's Beasley uh, uh, here. He didn't, Kitty Kiernan didn't even mention, a, or didn't even merit a single mention in Beasley's 950-page work. 
when Sean O'Foylon, there on the, the bottom right, decide, dared to write of Collins to tell what O'Foylon termed the true story of a great Irishman over a series of articles in the Sunday Chronicle newspaper in 1932, Beasley threatened to bring O'Foylon and the newspaper to the courts. The Sunday Chronicle buckled to the legal threat and O'Foylon's true story, as he called it, came to an abrupt and sudden end. Beasley was going to be the only one who got to say anything about Michael Collins. He published a condensed version of his book in 1937 under the title Michael Collins, Soldier and Statesman, and it was meant as a retort to Frank Packenham's book Peace by Ordeal, which had been published two years before. And like it was perceived, like Dorothy McArdle's The Irish Republic, that Packenham, uh, uh, as many felt, had been recruited to write, as one critic put it, De Valera's version of treaty history. And Beasley was determined to thwart these books by bringing out another version of Collins again. But in 1937, Beasley was also tackling a challenger for his own crown and another very conscious remaker, if you like, of Michael Collins, uh, this man, Frank O'Connor. O'Connor's biography of Collins, The Big Fellow, was published um, that year, and most of all, it wanted to undo, as he put it, the myth of Collins that Beasley had long fostered and arguably was fattening on. But however sentimental Beasley might have been about Collins, Frank O'Connor would have to grapple with appetites for syrup and gush that even Beasley could not satisfy. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. The British travel writer H.V. Morton, who came to visit Ireland around this time to write, a, a, if you like, a, a guidebook to visitors who wanted to come to Ireland, Beasley's, he read Beasley's book before he came, and Beasley's book, he argued, was just cold. He said, it does not give me a picture of the man so vivid as that which comes through now and then in less pretentious and more portable reminiscences of the time. Morton much preferred Bat O'Connor's 1929 book with its descriptions of, as Morton put it, the superb coolness of Michael Collins in the face of danger, and danger in those days meant a firing squad. He wants this kind of figure, if you like. Morton believed, as he said himself, that Collins would eventually become what he calls the Bonnie Prince Charlie of Ireland, that romance, as he said, will in the generosity of time claim him. Although Morton had been given tours when he came to Dublin of some of the dank spare rooms that Collins was said to have stayed in during the War of Independence, he presumed this was just the beginning of a fascination that was going to grow with Collins as the years went by. By the 1930s, Frank O'Connor knew as he uh, put it, that that generosity of time was already long past. As far as O'Connor was concerned, Collins had already long fallen victim to romance. For Collins's sake, O'Connor wants to bring the sentimentality to an end. He wants to remind readers that Collins, as he put it, was still a human being, that he took a drink, swore and lost his temper, just like everybody else. He saw the need for this flawed and fallible kind of Collins uh, to be written for a coming generation who had no memory, as he put it, of the great story that began in Easter 1916. And he genuinely feared, as he put it, that that generation would tire of what he termed the utterly unhuman shadows we have made of its heroes, and that they would have, as he says, no time to spare for this cloudy pantheon of perfect and boring immortals. But even O'Connor gave in to this type of romance that he despised in the end. With the loss of Collins at the end of the book, he wrote, the greatest oak in the forest had crashed. Arguably by the second edition of O'Connor's book in 1965, the very things that made Collins human by O'Connor's lights when he first wrote were likely the source of his heroism now. O'Connor's drinking, swearing Collins was a man apart from what were by the 1960s increasingly older rebels with their medals, and for all that Collins was very much a product of his own generation, 
He represented none of the hoary pieties about the revolution, which this coming generation in the 1960s might well have wanted to kick against. But the biographies and their own kinds of Michael Collins just kept on coming. Rex Taylor, and very quickly goes through some of them, wrote a biography in 1958, reprinted again and again through the 1960s, again republished in, the ni- in 1970, just before Marjorie, Marjorie Forrester's book came out, I don't have it there, The Lost Leader, which its title alone summing up all that sense of what might have been. Another edition of her book came out again in 1989, followed by many reprints throughout the 1980s of Leona Brin's Life of Collins, but arguably Tim Pat Coogan's uh, Michael Collins trumped them all in 1990, making Collins a staple of airport bookshops and bookshops all over the world ever since. Neil Jordan's film in 1996 no doubt reinvigorated the market for even more books still. And there have been books on the women in his life, the nature of his death, on Collins and intelligence, Collins and the treaty, Collins and devil era, Collins and the civil war, and of course the biography by Peter Hart in 2005 there on the right. You can see now why William and myself are a bit anxious about doing this. (laughs) Uh, This is not to even touch upon all of the Collinses of all the other books that have tried since the 1920s to bring the nature of the Irish Revolution to light. Almost a century worth of words have certainly sustained the ardour of his afterlife. Although Mary Bonatti, Collins's grandniece, could still complain in 1998, as she put it, that there was no mention of him in the history books, uh, Professor Jolie was quick to contradict her when he wrote in the very same book, within a page of Bonatti's protest, that it cannot be credibly claimed that Michael Collins has been neglected by historians and biographers, that instead he has attracted intense biographical attention by Irish standards, far more than any other figure from the revolutionary time. It is maybe why the popular conception of the period is so shaped by the accepted impression of his life. Why so many are so willing to reduce a complex period to what is sometimes just a caricature of what is himself a much more complex man. But Collins has an advantage that many of his contemporaries don't share. He had many, many central and walk-on parts in so many other people's books. His appearances in Irish memoirs of whatever form are many, whether published in the first flush of remembrance or in later life with all the benefit of other books and jaundiced hindsight. Authors seem to conjure him up almost as a sort of talisman to prove that they themselves were there, because knowing him may well assert their authority to write or give credence to their version of events. Even when Collins appears only in passing, he often comes more like a character than a real person, as a type that the author imagines the reader almost uh, ought to want. Some of the most obvious and enthusiastic were Bat O'Connor or David Nelligan. O'Connor set the tone, even with the title of his book, with Michael Collins in the fight for Irish independence, whereas David Nelligan established the connection in the very first line of his text. This is the story of my service with Michael Collins at the time of the Black and Tans. From the beginning, if you like, basking in some sort of assumed light. Enough books were casting Collins as a heroic figure, for Sean Moylan to warn Florence O'Donoghue not to make the same mistake when he set about writing the life of Liam Lynch, the former anti-treaty chief of staff. O'Donoghue was counselled to beware of making Lynch, as Moylan put it, a whale among minnows, as those who had written of Collins had done before. Indeed, Tom Barry wrote from a very similar instinct in his own book. Barry reminded his readers rather abruptly, as he put it, that any appreciation of Collins should not in any way suggest that Collins was a giant among pygmies. To Barry, Collins was in need of perspective most of all. While in public, Barry was quite conciliatory. He even unveiled a monument to Collins in 1965. Some of his anti-treaty contemporaries were not. 
Ernie O'Malley was still unflinching when he wrote uh, of, Collins's de- uh, of Collins decades after 1922, still angry at all the kind words and all the praise of Collins that had been heaped on his reputation since. To him, Collins was no better than the rest of the pro-treatyites, and worse still, none of them, as he put it, could compare with the Easter Week men. By the 1930s, when O'Malley wrote those lines, he'd had his fill of all this, as he saw it, guff about Michael Collins. For Robert Brennan, another anti-treatyite, Collins remained what Jerry Boland had once called him, a braggart and a bully. I could not bring myself to like him, was what Brennan wrote, which still at least implied that he had, had at one stage tried. But it would be too straightforward to see this as old anti-treatyites taking literary potshots just to settle old political scores. Frances Flanagan in her recent work has traced striking strains of ambivalence towards the revolutionary period in the work of many writers in the new Irish Free State and the dissenting voices, as she calls them, can clearly be heard among some of the pro-treatyites when it comes to depictions of Collins as well. It's there in page after obsessive page of Richard Mulcahy's notes on Pierce Beasley's book. He went through it and took notes every, on every one of those 952 pages. Uh, in the refutations of all the myths and inaccuracies as he saw them, which Mulcahy assembled but never published, I think the, um, his notes amount to about 400 pages in their own right, which he continued to add to and worry away at even into the last years of his life. It's there uh, even more strikingly in the work of P.S. O'Hegarty, who William mentioned already. Um, there he is. Um, particularly, uh, and O'Hegarty was certainly he was deeply critical as well of Beasley's biography. And, and, but he leaves us a quite challenging prospect in his own book, which he wrote in 1924, The Victory of Sinn Féin. As Flanagan writes, O'Hegarty presents his readers with the story of heroic triumph, but then he recounts the revolutionary period as what she calls a period of physical and moral slaughterhouse as well. And in ways, his treatment of Collins in this book reflects his own dilemma. He praises Collins, certainly, and quite effusively at times, but it is a decidedly ambivalent type of praise, given O'Hegarty's distaste for the nature of the War of Independence and the Civil War as he saw it. And he writes, his was the brain that conceived the war policy and his the courage and determination and capacity that maintained it and that never faltered in it. Right through it, Mick Collins was its eyes and ears, its push and its determination, its support, its cornerstone. However, just a few pages before, O'Hegarty starkly re- reckoned the fruits of this type of war. And he says, with the vanishing of reason and principle and morality, we became a mob and a mob we remained. And for the mob, there is only one law, gun law. So the gunman became supreme and the only thing which counted in Ireland in anything was force, for the spirit of the gunman invaded everything, not politics alone. As the war lengthened, it became more brutal and more savage and more hysterical and more unrelievedly black. O'Hegarty didn't draw Collins directly into that description. But when he asked his readers to remember the dead Michael Collins as the greatest soldier, the greatest man of action of the time of the terror, on O'Hegarty's own terms, this was no easy, straightforward type of praise for Collins. But for all who damned Collins with praise, ambivalent, faint or otherwise, there were always others quick to banish any doubts. Indeed, the flattery had flown almost foolishly high. While Lady Fingal saw Collins's face in death take on, as she said, an almost Napoleonic cast, Oliver St. John Gogarty saw a fully-fledged, as he put it, Napoleon who knew no Waterloo. Sing Togsvik went further. She wrote of a Collins with the handsome face of a Caligula. The Irish Revolution produced few to rival raptures like that. 
But hyperbole alone did not set Collins apart from the rest. While many Irish revolutionaries saw their reputations soar, Collins was among the very few of that period to register an international part. Whether in collections of unpublished British soldiers, letters or diaries, or in the few published memoirs of the British forces who spent some time in Ireland, while figures such as de Valera sometimes get a periodic or passing reference, only Collins appears with regularity, gets referred to explicitly by name. Douglas V. Duff, whose photograph is slightly entertaining in some way, <laughs> um, who was a black and tan here before he later turned his hands to writing boys' adventure books, always included a brush with Michael Collins, uh, and the infamous Michael Collins, as he refers to him, when his writings took an autobiographical turn, and he wrote about four or five autobiographies. Duff knew an adventure with Collins was the very thing his readers expected him to have. More obviously, though, Collins is there in the books of many British politicians of that time. In most biographies of Lloyd George, you'll find him with a key part in all the reminiscences of Burke and Head with the unlikely friendship they were said to have struck up. He's there in the diaries of the press baron Lord Riddle and those of the editor of the Manchester Guardian, C.P. Scott. He even crops up in a cartoon version of the life of Winston Churchill in the uh, Melbourne Argus newspaper in 1949. And of course, there were far more than that. Some reconciled themselves to a fondness for him. F.P. Crozier, the one-time head of the Auxiliaries, who wrote of a quite stirring interview with Michael Collins, was a dramatic, albeit not really a typical case in point. However, for others, Collins remained uh, the murderer, as Neville MacReady called him throughout, uh, if you like, his, his, his afterlife uh, from Ireland. He remained the villain uh, of MacReady's biography, Annals of an Act of Life, which in a way, reinforced, if you like, the fame and notoriety of Michael Collins, that someone like MacReady hated him as much as he did. Quite apart from that, Collins was reflected in the glow of others, recorded passing briefly through far more illustrious lives. Brief and slight encounters with T. Lawrence, with J.M. Barry, with George Bernard Shaw, reflected on the fame of him as well. But it was probably Winston Churchill who counts in this context most of all. The world crisis, um, I never know whether to refer to it as a book or books, or there's so many like, volumes of, this is only some of them. Um, he muses critically, but often almost lovingly, on the Collins that he conjures up within it. And he describes them as follows. He was an Irish patriot, true and fearless, successor to a sinister inheritance, reared among fierce conditions and moving through ferocious times, he supplied those qualities of action and personality without which the foundation of Irish nationhood would not have been established. Of course, Churchill was not beyond using Collins to reflect well upon himself. For instance, he sent me a valedictory message through a friend for which I am grateful, and it said, tell Winston we could never have done anything without him. <laughs> but then modesty was not one of Churchill's or these books, book or books, strongest points. Arthur Balfour claims that the world crisis, as he put it, was Winston's brilliant, auto brilliant autobiography described as a history of the universe. What mattered in terms of Collins's afterlife, though, was Churchill's reach, the reach of these volumes right across the world. It brought Collins to a whole new set of readers. In multiple serialisations and editions in, in its range and reach, as I said, of readership, Churchill sets this Michael Collins upon the world. Perhaps because their reach was so wide and the author so influential, it mattered how Collins was portrayed in here. Churchill knew the damage he might inflict on the Irish Free State by what he wrote about Ireland, and particularly by what he wrote about Michael Collins. So he had various allies read what he called the Irish parts. John Anderson, who'd been joint Undersecretary under for Ireland from 1920 to 22, felt, as he said, that the text is a little unfair to Collins. Collins, whose nerves, he said, I know from personal observation were not very good. 
On reading the Irish chapters, Lionel Curtis wrote to Churchill in November 1928 in case Churchill was still in any doubt about the influence that these, this, his writing might have. And he said, Neville Macready's disclosures seem to have been measured at the author's unimportance and to have passed unnoticed. Yours cannot. They must provoke controversy, attract widespread interest and gravely embarrass Cosgrave and his followers. He ended his letter by reminding Churchill of the assassination of Kevin O'Higgins and he said that some of your paragraphs may cost people their lives. A month later, Churchill replied, and he said, I have asked Cosgrave if he will let me send him the Collins and murder parts, which is a telling association in and of itself. Unfortunately, there's no record of, Col of Cosgrave's reply, but Cosgrave's response in 1952 to a draft of Porrick Cullum's biography of Arthur Griffith and to a reference it contained to Collins is very clear. Cullum had referred to Churchill's comment that Collins looked like he wanted to shoot himself after signing the treaty, and Cosgrave simply could not tolerate that being repeated in the book. He wrote, this should not be quoted of a man with the religion and courage of Michael Collins. Lives may not have been at stake anymore in 1952, as Lionel Curtis believed they were in the late 1920s, but clearly it still mattered deeply what was said about the treaty and more so what was written of this man, Collins. For Cosgrave, a version of him had to hold, God-fearing, probably, fearless, certainly, but confirmed in support of the treaty most of all. When Cosgrave himself wrote Collins's entry for the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography back in 1937, this was precisely the type of Michael Collins he described. And now, well into the 1950s, with some old Cumanagale friends, Cosgrave encouraged Cullum to write a book on Arthur Griffith towards the very same end. Wanting to control what was said of Collins, even in this book about Griffith, suggests just how much Collins mattered, and that he had still very popular currency at that point. All of this competing for Collins is suggestive, but so too are the various uses to which he's been put. The army mutineers felt a need of him in 1924, as did the government that thwarted them. The blue shirts claimed him in their boisterous Collins's walking and cycling clubs, but more worryingly in what was feared to be their version of Mussolini's march on Rome, when they planned to march on Dublin in August 1933. It was Collins's revolver Ono Duffy claimed the police took for him, or at least it was reported as such. And it was in Collins's memory that this shirted, saluted, saluting movement was assembling to march for, for the anniversary of his death. The use of Collins to these and many later disparate ends suggests that Collins was malleable enough to champion all sorts of causes and more. He could be used to prod where prodding hurt. That he could be turned to serve so many different ends might suggest that many of those who called upon him had no wish to remake him in anything other than their own image. As Jolie has argued, most who invoked a version of Collins did not, as he says, probe too closely in case their hero turned out to be all too human, in case their connection with him might be exposed as one more of convenience than conviction. It suited all sorts of purposes, if it was never really clear what Michael Collins was actually about. Yet his imprimatur mattered, and it always has, not just for the army mutineers or for O'Duffy's blue shirts. Simple searches in the records of Dahl and Shannon debates find Michael Collins cropping up everywhere, supporting and opposing a myriad of things, from compulsory tillage in the late 1930s to a criminal justice bill in 1981. He's very handy to throw about in a Dahl debate. He was to hand for those who wanted to make war in Northern Ireland, and he came just as readily as a shining example of how to make peace there in its place. Even the Financial Times in London regularly reminded Martin McGuinness and Gerry Adams of all the lessons Michael Collins' example might teach in the 1990s. In 2013, then Minister for Agriculture, Simon Coveney claimed that Collins would have been proud of the budget of that year, 
the politician, the noun, the year, they almost barely matter. But Collins, if you like, is the constant still. And it's easy to mock the uses and misuses of him to selfish and to seemingly contradictory ends, to snigger at the type of slip Enda Kenny made at Bailenham Law in, in 2012 when he claimed that Collins had brought Lenin to Ireland, to sneer along with the newspaper opinion pieces which point out how limited this generation's politicians are when they try to conjure a great like Collins to their side. But it is the pol politician's perseverance in a way that's the most interesting thing. In his first leader's address to the Fine Gael Ordesh in November 2017, it was Collins Leo Varadkar chose to end with. Something in Collins resonates still, enough to make the pointed references to him worth the speechwriter's while. But Collins is a popular appeal that goes beyond any particular group's attempt to control or contain him, and that appeal was there from the very beginning. It, is, it isn't a, just a recent thing. It isn't just a post-Neil Jordan 1996 thing. While he was by no means the only revolutionary figure newspaper advertisements encouraged readers to buy pictures of in the 1920s, while the adverts claiming every Irish home should possess copies of these great pictures still applied to people like Kevin Barry, just as it did to Michael Collins, well into 1923 and 1924, Collins maintained, and somehow remains with us, informed we can't really, I think, imagine of many of his peers. Michael Collins, the musical drama, premiered in Cork in 2006, well, it, when it ran in Kilkenny in 2014, advertising hoardings were routinely vandalised, maybe saying something in and of itself of Collins's continued notoriety or fame. While the internet prompts and provides home to wondrous types of Collins discussions, and some quite frightening ones as well, it has also brought all sorts of Collins things that you can buy. Michael Collins mugs, and I kind of picked an old one on purpose. This is, this is a, much more, uh, a much earlier one, a plate with the same image, I think sold for about 1,500 euros a few years ago. Um, so you, can, you could have got them on plates and mugs, and you can still get them on mugs in, in various shapes and forms. This is a key ring from the Michael Collins Irish whiskey um, brand. So there's, there are numerous interesting and amusing things you can buy. Mugs, T-shirts, key rings, hats, Michael Collins, blankets, pictures, jackets, statuettes, all sorts of things. Auctions regularly come and go, selling anything that amounts to memorabilia of them. Things long kept as relics, perhaps now inherited across generations, and which became, in the run-up to the centenary of the Easter Rising, quite lucrative to sell. Auctions peddle anything with his initials or his signature, anything with the mark or the hint of him, for really quite considerable amounts. A revolver that may or may not have been with him at Bail Le Blas sold for €72,000 in 2009. His Bible, a British post office issue, King James Bible, went under the hammer for €1,800 Euros the same day. Even brass buttons that were found in his uniform pocket when he died, they may well have just fallen off and he stuck them in there to be stitched back on, fetched a quite considerable €4,250. So look in your attics and um, I think under the stairs. In 2012, an attempt to sell a cloth used to wipe his dead face and a lock of his hair, clipped from his head as a keepsake after his death, was abandoned after the couple who hoped to sell them for an expected three to five thousand euros eventually acknowledged after public pressure that selling these items was in slightly poor taste. They donated them to the National Museum instead. But this instinct to consume and to commodify him is far older than this recent rush to auction houses with his most intimate and his most tangential effects. As early as May 1923, what one newspaper described as an American collector came upon Collins's copy of Oscar Wilde's De Profundus in a London bookshop. Collins had signed his name in Irish on it and assiduously recorded when he bought it. 
The find made the newspapers because, as they put it, relics of Michael Collins have been fetching high prices in the United States, and the lucky American is expecting to make a substantial profit on his purchase. The lucky American having bought it uh, for just a few pence. And this was May 1923. This is just a few months after his death. It seems, if you like, that he could always command a considerable price. Without question, that price is inflated since Neil Jordan's Michael Collins was released in 1996. Uh, they're just the two different posters, which in a way are interesting in and of themselves. We can talk about them later. This is the one that we all maybe know and are familiar with. This was the, the initial one that they planned, but because an IRA ceasefire broke down the time the film came out, they, they got rid of this one and went with a much more political, if you like, Collins the politician rather than Collins the man of action. Which again just shows how significant, if you like, the creation of this man's image and the, uh, is. Much has been said of the film's representations. You've all probably seen it, and I'm going to bore you with what it's about. Um, particularly its representations of violence, about the kind of Collins it personified, about the historical inaccuracies that might pass for artistic license. But whatever its faults or failings, there were notable markers of, of its appeal and its success. The film won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival in 1996. It broke Irish box office records in its first eight weeks and was released with a, a general certificate because the Irish film censor considered, as he put it, its great significance outweighed concerns about depictions of violence within it and even said that it was so important, was how he put it, that Irish parents might want to bring their children to see it. For one critic, Collins was dead as a character as soon as Liam Neeson was cast since a Neeson hero, he said, cannot be bad. I think we have to remember not the Liam Neeson of his, I don't know what they're called, geriatric action movies or whatever he call, they call them now. <laughs> this is Liam Neeson of a much earlier time. Um, this is Liam Neeson, if, if, you, if you think of it much more in the context of, of he'd just been Rob Roy and then obviously Oscar Schindler. Um, and for the, this film critic, this felt that a, a, a Neeson character, if you like, won't have any moral ambiguity. He's going to be seen as all good. He's not going to be able to capture, if you like, the complexities of the figure that Collins was. And he certainly, arguably, brought the shadow of Schindler and Rob Roy instantly. Uh, film audiences around the world who knew nothing about Irish history knew this was the good guy, if you like. And certainly they knew when Alan Rickman was cast as De Valera, <laughs> just what they were getting. Um, I mean, this is... <laughs> I think you remember, I think he cancelled Christmas when he was the sheriff of Nottingham in, uh, in, the, um, in Robin Hood. And obviously he's probably best known as uh, Hans Gruber, in, who tried to persecutor of poor Bruce Willis in Die Hard. It's clear De Valera's villainous die was cast when Neeson was invited to unveil your statue just uh, over the road, um, six years after the film's release, it wasn't really clear anymore if this very sizable crowd, which turned out, came to see Liam Neeson or came to think about Michael Collins, or if the line had blurred completely between them both. Um, and the film's effect has certainly remained. Tourists are still encouraged to travel the Michael Collins Drive through the various sites, particularly around Wicklow, Rathdrum, down around there, where the scenes were filmed, while in 2012 a group of students took a life-size cardboard cutout of uh, Michael Collins. Where is he gone? Uh, there he is. Um, they took him around the United States with them. They took pictures, obviously, of all the places where their Collins had been. They took him to the coast, they brought him to the ball game, as you see here, to the bright lights of Times Square in New York, and they described it as their odyssey to find Liam Neeson. They're, if you like, the version of Michael Collins that they had grown up with. And you have this odd kind of world where Liam Neeson is the real Michael Collins, <laughs> students say. Um, but this type of notoriety is not all because of Neeson and Jordan. There have been many, many Collinses, lofty and popular alike, 
over the decades. Cecil Day-Lewis, Daniel's father, wrote a poem about him. Dennis Devlin, another. Tom Paulin, Seamus Heaney, another. He's there in the shadows of Sebastian Barry's The Steward of Christendom and his boss Grady's boys. Even uh, a programme, Cooking for Michael Collins, was heard on BBC Radio 4 in 2006. Uh, you have a whole variety of plays. Michael Fassbender. I was just an indulgence putting the picture of Michael Fassbender. Uh, he brought Mary Kenny's version of Michael Collins to the Edinburgh stage many years ago. Well, Roddy Doyle, Dermot McAvoy followed Constantine Fitzgibbon's fictional attempts to bring him back to life. Graphic novels, Mick O'Dea's art is an example here in the bottom right. Jared Whelan's children's stories, Brendan Bean's Laughing Boy, even a Gavin Friday album cover recently, all amongst others, have kept a type of Collins before their own particular audience's eyes. And there are many more Collinses to find, not least the Collinses that might have been. David Putnam of Chariots of Fire fame, Michael Cimino, I'm never sure if I'm pronouncing it right, the Deer Hunter uh, director, Kevin Costner wanted to do a Michael Collins film, Robert Redford. They were all beaten to it by Neil Jordan and Liam Neeson, though all had their own Collins film in mind. Whether it's art, consumption or kitsch, it all reveals the constancy of his appeal and how each generation shapes something of their fascination with him in turn. No doubt when the then Manchester United manager Alex Ferguson and the rugby player Rowan O'Gara admitted their admiration for Collins, they confirmed if confirmation was necessary that Collins was very much a man for their own times. Frivolous or not, there are, these are stri still striking measures of Collins's vibrant afterlife. He was Irishman of the century in a 1999 Irish Times poll, and he was voted Britain's second greatest foe when the British National Army Museum had a public vote in 2012, losing out to George Washington. He very easily beat Napoleon Bonaparte. In January 1926, Sir Horace Plunkett wrote to the Countess of Fingal about a medium who claimed to have done, as he put, a good deal of talking with Michael Collins uh, across the ether or wherever <laughs> she was talking to him through. That when he first saw the automatic writing, as he put it, it seems to be that Michael Collins alone could have concocted the message. Whether Collins did or did not move the medium's hand is a quandary for a very different talk, but that there was want enough of, a Collins, of Collins for a medium to build a reputation for herself on being able to speak to him in 1926, that even a little bit of Plunkett seemed tempted to believe, hits to the heart of what we might mean here by an afterlife. Collins knew precisely the power of his persona, and capitalised when he could on what people wanted or seemed willing to believe of him through 1921 and particularly in 1922. Anything that can be said about me, say it, was how he responded to Minister for Defence Cahill Brewer's accusations during the treaty debates that he had played up to journalists to exaggerate his role. Someone who opted in such circumstances for such a reply cannot be neatly separated from the stories wheat from chaff. The real Michael Collins was only ever in the eye of the beholder, and Collins, even from his earliest days in London, was quick to make a virtue out of that. In many ways, Collins made himself, and we've just continued the process, making and remaking him ever since. Thanks. So there we are. An excellent talk from Anne Dolan, who raises the question, who was Michael Collins? Is the Collins we now know the real Michael Collins, or has the myth become larger than the man? One of the things we do try to do at Michael Collins House Museum in Clonakilty is separate the myth from the reality and present the historical fact. And while this is a little bit different from the legendary figure often presented in popular media, it is nonetheless a fascinating story of achievement in such a short lifetime. 
I really hope you enjoyed our first podcast and look forward to bringing you more in the future. It is a big learning curve for us here. Um, everything is done in-house, the sound, the recording and the editing. So I do apologise for any sound issues or anything like that. We will improve as we cr- progress, hopefully. Thank you for joining us today and hopefully you will come back again and direct your friends and family our way too. Follow us on our social media on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for more and please do show your support. Share our posts and try and get as many involved as possible. Again, thank you for listening and goodbye from me. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by Michael Collins House Museum, Clonakilty, funded and run by Cork County Council.